This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I'm your host, Mark Oppenheimer, joined by the other hosts, tablet editor-at-large, Lee Leibowitz. Ahalan wasahalan. And the deputy editor of Tablet Magazine, Stephanie Budnick. I'm actually the deputy editor emeritus, like when you're rabbi. Right. Like, emerita. Yeah. You are a woman without portfolio. No, I'm emeritus. <laughs> Which means I get to like go to paid. all the meetings and like at universities. Give my you're you're emeritus, and I'm at large. Between <laughs> us, we're not a very impressive pair. <laughs> let me tell you. Let me break this down. First of all, you would be emerita. Second, at universities, that I means I want to be emeritet. Emerita. At universities, yeah. that would mean Emeritrix. that you would keep your email account and library privileges, but get no money. <laughs> So if you want to keep showing up, checking your email and taking books off the tablet bookshelves, of which there are many, and not getting paid for it, All I'm the Holocaust sure every- books you want. Oh, yeah, I mean, it's like a pretty sweet deal. I liked Emeritus. It sounded fun. God Ameritrix. Speed. Ameritrix. Ameritrix. Hashem Speed. Uh, today on the show, we're bringing you an interview with health and wellness writer Rina Raphael. It's actually much better than I just made it sound because health and wellness writer makes her sound like a Fruit Loop. She's actually a health and wellness She's writing She's a recovering skeptic. health and wellness. Yes, yes. exactly. Health and wellness coming out of your mouth sounds like the most like dire, like, oh, health and wellness. Right. She joined us to tell us about her new book, The Gospel of Wellness, Jim's Guru's Goop, and the False Promise of Self-Care. So there, there we go. There we Amazing. go. Now we know what we're doing. Also, an interview with John Bermuda Schwartz, who is the drummer, of course, for Weird Al Yankovic, or as my dad used to say, Weird Al Yankelovich. And then a return Gentile of the Week. We're going to play a little bit of tape from our Gentile of the Week, Tabitha Soren. We never got to her GOTW question. And so we're going to get to it. We can't quit her. Today. We cannot quit her. I love her her. so much. Before we get to news of the Jews, I want to tell you guys about something. One of my daughters, I'm not going to say which one or which grade, but she was in a social studies class with a teacher of the Gentilic persuasion, the non-Israelite. I've heard about those. Yes. Apparently, some people teach I have never encountered any, to be honest. Who are not Hebrews or Israelites. I believe he's of some sort of Protestant persuasion. And in social studies for this grade, for this week, they teach about Judaism. (laughs) Do they call it Judaism? Judaism. (laughs) Like my friends from college. Or is my teacher, my wonderful teacher, the late great historian of French Jewry and women in Judaism, Paula Hyman, one of the great scholars of the 20th century, used to say, and it was so curious, I say this with love, she called it Judaism. Judaism. There was no Judaism. Yeah, from the tribe of Judah. Judaism. Judaism. So he was teaching about— It's like Judo. Judaism. And um, he—so my my daughter was coming home every day with another sort of of, eye-rolling—you'll never guess what so-and-so, Mr. or Ms. so-and-so said today. First of all, apparently the ancient and current capital of Israel is Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Not Jerusalem, not Yerushalayim, but— Jerusalem. And with, she said, a, with a Z. Do Christians pronounce it Jerusalem? And like, I said, like the zombie apocalypse. Right. I, did, I said, I don't know. I don't know if that's a, a Goyesha pronunciation. If in Baptist churches, Episcopal, you know, vicarages across the world, they're saying Jerusalem. It's like fat with a PH. It's like extra yeah. cool. Extra cool. And then she said, um, he was trying to teach us about the important people. And he said, basically, you can sum it up like this. The most important Jews are Abraham, David, and Solomon. <laughs> And you can figure out, like, think of them as if there were a Mount Rushmore of Judaism, they'd be on the Mount Rushmore. If there were graven images yeah. in this religion, <laughs> it would be these three. Hold on. This is really— Which, of so course, Abraham, Abraham, as a constellation of three, it makes hold no on, hold sense on. So, whatsoever. So, so, so no Jacob or Isaac, no, no, no fathers or but mothers. Solomon. No. And Solomon, well, who he, did build a temple and write but, Song of Songs. But he doesn't get—he sort but, of generally gets short shrift in the—he's not— Like, what about the patriarchs? Right. So clearly what's I going on I never thought here. I'd say that, but what about the patriarchs? What about, <laughs> what about the imahot? What about the moms? Here's the thing. 
obviously what's this, the opposite what's the reversal of smashing the patriarchy I'm building it I'm building it Mount Rushmore to the patriarchy <laughs> Just at least do it right. I thought about this and I thought, this is somebody who must come from a tradition. Solomon, of course, wrote the Proverbs, according to legend. This is someone who comes from a tradition, which is most Christian traditions, where they're very into Proverbs, right? They quote Proverbs a lot. So Unlike I think, us who are into puns. Right. So I think that's why Solomon gets promoted. And David wrote the Psalms. I think this is someone who's into our wisdom literature from a Christian POV and therefore promotes David and Solomon up the ladder. Could have been much worse. Could have been like, uh, people you need to know are Sam Bankman-Fried. <laughs> Bernie Madoff. Bernie Madoff. Bernie yeah. Madoff. <laughs> anyway. He was so, like, I heard there was an ancient chord. <laughs> right. <laughs> I do think actually Batsheva was discussed, or Delilah, one of them, there was, it was a very random smattering of Jewish information that she got. Oh, and then the other thing is, this was the thing that drove my daughter around the bend, was he said, and to be culturally sensitive, we should also pronounce the name of God the way the Jews pronounce it, which is Yahweh, because they call God <laughs> Yahweh. And so she's like, I've had enough. And at this point, my daughter comes home that day. That says, is literally the one thing we do not right. pronounce. My We've daughter, constructed entire language just to avoid. language to say, Adonai, Elohim. Do you know about Hashem, man? Hashem, like, we don't say that. So my daughter comes home that day, and this is not a snarky child, and says, Dad, I, I just wish you'd let me teach the Judaism unit. <laughs> So this is literally like the Book of Mormon, the plot of yes. the, the musical, The Book of Mormon, where he's just teaching whatever he wants. Whatever he wants. This guy based, and the thing is, there are other Jews in this class. A bunch of my daughter's friends, including some people from our school, go to this school. And I think they're just all sitting there through gritted teeth and watching this man massacre our religious tradition with good intentions. Good intentions. Just, it's macroaggression. It's macroaggression. The good intentions make it worse as far as I'm concerned. Because honestly, dude, this is like a, this is, it's not even, it's like a Wikipedia article to to get this shit straight. Like, you don't need to go very far. I think, here's the thing. I think he was thinking, you know, I want to make it vivid for them. I'm going to find a metaphor to make it vivid. It's like the Mount Rushmore of Judaism. And I think that was his attempt to bring it home. But couldn't he have put a fourth up there on the, on the... You're saying he thinks they're only three... It's like if only, about his <laughs> if only there was some, some mountain children. in Jewish history, some mountain that mattered to Jews, that, that would be very vivid. That also... Oh, Rushmore. Repaired Aunt Sylvia's gallbladder. Oh, Mount Sinai, we're talking about, right? Exactly, exactly. Montefiore. <laughs> so that's what's going on at Oppenshire Manor. Can you improve on that, either of you? I can't improve on that, but I was walking down West End Avenue in Manhattan the other day, and I had the most amazing run-in. I'm sorry, I was actually walking up West End Avenue. Ooh. All of a sudden, someone said, Stephanie. It was Jackie Hoffman. To that's, be honest, that's, I was That's showing, my territory. It was Joel Gray. While this was happening, then we set the scene. Edith was about an hour late to head home for her nap, so mm. she was in a great mood. I was showing Ben an Instagram reel of a woman pretending <laughs> to give a Hebrew lesson, right. <laughs> playing a character of a woman, Israeli woman giving a Hebrew lesson, being like, you got to watch this funny video that my boss sent me. Meanwhile, someone says, Stephanie, it is Lisa Ann Sandel and Lily Leibovitz. Mrs. Liel Leibovitz. I saw the other half of Liel's family, all the people that were not him. And it was very exciting. I was so thrown to see them without Liel. It was just like, it was, I don't know. It's it was like kind a celebrity sighting. Considering the fact that we, we live ten blocks apart. eight blocks apart oh, yeah, on the same avenue. The fact that we actually almost never run into each other is kind of weird. It was very— It's like we divided the territory. It's like, true. Like mob families. Like, you get West End Avenue I, up into Barney Greengrass. She gets Amsterdam. I, I get was like, bagels. I, I just never thought I'd see you in the 80s. Like, you're in the 90s. <laughs> and, like, that day I was in the 70s, which was, like, downtown, right. basically. Like, right. I you never well, go down. You might as well even try back then. Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't there because I would never venture to <laughs> <laughs> filthy provinces. But it was really exciting. 
Do you guys know exciting. what street I we lived on when I was born? Because this kind oh. of, it divides it all. West 90th, 35 West 90th. Wow. Right really? off the park. Right off the park. Right off the park. Wow. Oh, so you fancy. Yeah. Well, they, that, the I think that apartment cost 280 a month back then. You know, people are getting shot. There were drug dealers. 280 cost, million dollars. Yeah, it's 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 like, it still cost 280. If, if that, $280,000. <laughs> that's one of those great New York stories. What my parents, a law student and a uh, secretary at the mm-hmm. classified section of the New York Times Ooh. paid for their apartment in 1974 at 35 West 90th. So and I was genetically... I, yes. I, I'm bred to be right in the middle of you two. I love that. 35 West 90th. Between I love the 80s that. and the 90s. Yep. So, so I want to further the discord and the divide between us. Uh, because I thought you I, wanted to further the discourse. No, the discord. We're all about it. Okay, the discord. We're okay. Jews. All right, America. Discourse is very <laughs> gentilic. It belongs on someone else's Mount Rushmore. <laughs> uh, the discord, because I think if there's one thing that truly sets me apart from the two of you in, in a pretty major way, it's the fact that I don't watch TV. Not only do I not, you know, partake in your shows like White Lotus, Fleischman in Trouble, but I don't watch anything. This week, I watched a show which actually helped me understand why I don't watch TV, which is something that's been in the back of my mind for quite a bit, because obviously everyone around me talks a lot about their TV habits, and I've been feeling a little left out. I want to run this theory by you, because I'm I'm very interested by what you have to say. So... As you may know, or might have known and then repressed because it makes me not particularly likable, I'm obsessed with Scooby-Doo. I think it's mm. one of the greatest canonical texts of American or any other culture at, at any time. Therefore, when I heard uh, that there is a new Scooby-Doo show called Velma on HBO Max, I was very excited. I was doubly excited when I learned that that show was written and voiced by Mindy Kaling, who I know from The Office and loved a great deal and watched the Mindy Kaling Project or whatever the show was called and a million years ago, one of my last TV shows I used to watch, <laughs> and was really, really excited about this thing. Started reading up about it and got like the first kind of like, you know, alarm bell because you heard a lot of people on the internet saying, oh, people are going to hate it because she made Velma Indian American and Shaggy is black and everyone's gay. I was like, yeah, why would- Is Scooby anyone... gay? Scooby's not in the show. That's, wow. that's another one of those. Okay. But whatever. I was like, I'm- going with a totally open mind. I'm very excited. I love this thing. I was a little bit disappointed to know that Shaggy, who is now black, isn't voiced by the rapper Shaggy, which is a huge <laughs> miss opportunity. It's a miss. It's a, it, is a miss. it is a miss. But then, but then I watched the show and in 40 something minutes or two episodes up, I understood why I freaking hate television and, and culture in general and why I've gone completely Haredi and I don't partake in anything <laughs> that these people put out there. Here's the thing. I love Scooby-Doo because Scooby-Doo is a an epic poem of friendship. There's no plot. It's always the same. It's like, oh, you pull up the rubber mask and the meddling kids and Mr. McGillicuddy who is pretending to be the Jeepers to keep like, it's always the same, you know. It's about young people in, in their community solving crimes to help everyone <laughs> uh, and, and sacrificing for each other and sticking together despite everything. That is not only, you know, the theme of the show, that is the entire body of the show. And then you watch this new take. Everyone is super mean. Everyone is super snarky. Everyone is like trying to backstab each other and like undermine one another. The super clicky, gossip girly thing. And then I kind of realized immediately, like it, it was it was sacrilegious because it was actually a complete negation of the sacred spirit of, of the do. Um, but then I realized that this is actually my problem with television all around. It's all a fucking wilderness of assholes. Everything you see, everywhere you turn, it's just 
sucky people. And, and here's my problem. It's not about the ideology or the story. Like, I don't care about any of that. I watch anything. I just don't like watching nasty people because I'm surrounded by assholes as is. IRL. So hey, man. Why would I watch, you know? Definitely right. don't start White Lotus because I think you might be disappointed. <laughs> this is what I mean. Like, look, we, we used to have shows back in my day. Yeah. yeah shows like Frasier. There were three Rosanna, channels. Even Cheers. Like, these were shows no, about, about friendship. nice people who tried to help each other, who were together. And now I don't think, I'm going to challenge you, I don't think, and by the way, I think Seinfeld, I think Seinfeld is the culprit here. I think Seinfeld murdered Good TV, warm happiness, family, joy, humanity. Like you cannot turn the TV on and just see decent people living their lives, trying to be good parents, good friends, like the rest of us. That's a good challenge to our listenership. I actually don't watch that much TV. We have one TV and it's usually playing sports. But I actually will say that there's another show. I think it's a Mindy Kaling show, Sex Lives of College Girls. And that is about like a very, very, very close-knit they're fairly nice to each other. Yes. Of, of, of female friends in college, freshman year, who are like sort of four of them against the world of, of the various things that happen to you in this, well, in this universe. And isn't she the producer of Never Have I Ever? Yes. Which is also basically about decent people. I actually except wonder, for the Jewish character. Except for the Jewish character. A monster. I actually wonder if she's trying to up her snark cred with this. And I, I would share your disappointment. I, I have a few thoughts. The first is I agree with Stephanie. This is a challenge to our listeners. And they should write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com. With show, would you take a show recommendation if there were a collective recommendation from a bunch of listeners who said, here's a show with decent people that finds interesting things to say about people being normal and decent to each other. Would you try a few episodes, I would Leo? try a few episodes. You would try a few episodes. But, but, um, they, but they need to have, like, families. They need to live in, like, recognizably Paw normal. Paw Patrol <laughs> is lovely. The, they're all working there, together. There no new episodes in uh, quite, quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing I'll say— But hold on. I mean, I mean children's shows are, are actually, I think, a much worse you know, paradigm because There's you go on Disney guy. right now or on Nickelodeon or whatever, every single kid— on any one of these shows is like a giant asshole. The parents are either non-existent or they're the biggest doofuses. There's no show in which it's like decent parents working hard, trying to make like like just a normal representation. I'm like- also going to solve it for you. Sid and I have been watching Grant Chester. Do any of you know Grant Chester? That sounds like a made-up show that you would watch. Grant Chester. Grant <laughs> Chester. It's a show Chester. cozy mysteries. Grant Chester. show called <laughs> Grant Chester. Grant Chester. Is a, Which is about, is, it was about a retired Yale professor. No, no not even so even. Close. A Tweety mystery. It's kids. Not even even. <laughs> it was imported. My, my parents turned us on to it. Me and Sid. It's set around 1953, and it's about an Anglican vicar in a small town <laughs> who, who helps the local police inspector solve crimes. It's literally it's the new fan, Scooby-Doo. It's your erotic fantasy. And, it's your and they are trying, they're struggling with, with vices because the vicar, although he's not a Catholic priest who has to be celibate forever, he's not yet married. And so he is not oh, supposed okay. to have sex with anyone, but sometimes he has vices. He drinks a little too much and smokes a few too many cigarettes. Oh, and he, he has this really, and yes, and there's a sort of um, a very judgy dowager housekeeper in the vicarage who judges him and tries to keep him in line. She's sort of the mother figure. She cleans up after him and cooks for him and tries to get him to drink <laughs> less and find a proper wife and settle down. But, but his vice is solving crimes with the local police inspector. <laughs> At Jordy, with a G, of course, you know, like George. And it's it's a cozy. It's basically murder, she wrote. You know, a lot of murders in this small town of Grantchester. Every week there's another murder to solve. But people are fundamentally decent to each other. They have vices, but they struggle to overcome them. <sighs> they drink I'm, a lot of tea. They, they drink a lot of whiskey and a lot oh, of pints okay, at the okay. pub. They do drink some tea. So, okay, I like and this. And there's... Um, 
No, and, and there's cricket sometimes, and there's the bicycle. There are a lot of bicycle riding in this show. And they're Brits, I, so at the end of each episode, they just get together and suppress but, whatever it is that no, they're No, but here's the thing. Because, here's what I want to I want to I want to add to the discord discourse. So much of American TV now comes from Israel, right? And a lot of it, it like, and so <laughs> yeah, there's the culprit. You're, no, blaming, no, you're blaming the I'm Jews. I'm not blaming the Basically. Jews. I'm saying let's <laughs> add, let's see what uh, the introduction of these sort of like some of them are very dramatic. A lot of them are about, like, war and things like that. How does that play into this? That's a great question. I would say that, and this is a completely non-scientific survey, but I think <laughs> that the, the shows that that I know of, and it's not like I'm some big expert in Israeli TV, but the shows that get imported are the shows that are the least kind of tribal for very good reasons. I mean, a lot of Israeli TV only really makes sense if you live there and get like all these references. So the shows that will make it out, although Shtisel wasn't, I don't know, maybe I'm completely wrong. I mean, Shtisel is a classic example of great family oriented TV, by which I don't mean TV for the entire family. I mean, TV shows about, about loving, family. supportive families. <laughs> News of the Jews. Stephanie, we we knew there was going to be a George Santos update. We knew he was going to be the gift that keeps on giving. Can you give us an update on Representative George Santos? Here is the latest from the New York Times. George Santos' secret resume, a Wall Street star with a 3.9 GPA. Two years before Which, his— by the way, is so low these days. <laughs> these days of great inflation. Like, did he even take an AP? Right. Don't even brag about a 3.9. Two years before his successful run for Congress, George Santos gave Long Island Republican officials a resume that reads like a detailed roadmap of his lies. Uh, the Times actually embedded his his resume. The, <laughs> the, the first red flag—and this is a big one—it's two pages— Right. No. That, no. You, you don't just do can't, that. We all know. You, yeah. you don't do that. You don't do that. It's basically lies. He said he got an MBA from NYU. He said to, he went to Baruch College. And of course, there are like amazing details where, you know, the time he claims he was working at City, the bank, he actually was working for Dish Network as a mm. customer service agent. His skills list is just like very, very, very long. Also, a lot of weird words capitalized, which I also, this just like offends me <laughs> on a visceral level. Well, that's how you know someone is truly mentally ill. It's the random caps. <laughs> it's just too many caps. No, it's like sales is cap. But here's, here's the end of the article, which is amazing. Evidently not satisfied that the written record was enough. Mr. Santos told NASA County Republican officials that he was also part of a championship-winning volleyball team at Baruch. This is a quote. He said he was a star and that they won the championship and he was a striker. <laughs> I mean, what well, do we— he scored many volleyball touchdowns. Right. So many field goals. So look, I, I find it very hard to pick on George Santos this week uh, as he just lost his daughter, Lisa Marie Presley. Uh, but— <laughs> But here's the thing that really struck me reading this particular news story. Do you remember the Ben Stiller show? I the saw one or two episodes of it, yeah. show. This, my Apparently absolute, it was great. Apparently it was very funny. Absolute all-time favorite bit of skit comedy. I love this skit called Yakov Smirnov's Last Stand, <laughs> in which he pretends to be Yakov Smirnov and makes these jokes like, in Soviet Russia, car drive you. And the people are like, dude, there's no more Soviet Russia. <laughs> it's just normal now. And he's like, oh my God, I don't have any more jokes. The Iron Curtain's lifted and Yakov's on his own. In former Soviet Union used to be pretty bad. We had no freedom. Now, we have freedom. Pretty crazy, huh? So like, feeling so bad for George Sanders, like he crafted his entire resume 
for this world in which the more elite you are, the more trustworthy you are, like you could just really go and be in like the banks and the schools and arrived at the exact minute in which people are looking for the exact opposite of that. Like if he said, hey, man, I was a Dish Network customer service. I know people. I know hard work. Ex- yeah. That is such a great except political apparently, thing. Except apparently in Western Long Island on Nassau County. Where, like, Ooh, he worked for Citibank. fired. I mean, I'm sorry. Like, these at least people, work for Comcast. Right. <laughs> these, these people, he worked for, oh, he was, and he was an athlete. That must mean he's a man of high moral caliber. He was a volleyball but player. Like, how Baruch funny would it have been like, yeah, I was a customer service rep for Comcast. Like, no, it was Dish Network. <laughs> <laughs> I was a Coca-Cola they were like, cable vision had merged no, dude, at that point. It, yeah. was, it was Pepsi. <laughs> Liel, take us to the land where all the resumes are true and in 12-point font, Israel. And everyone is happy. So a lot of my friends on Facebook were really baffled this week because they saw a word that they didn't understand. It was written in Hebrew. And they were like, what is this about the opening of uh, Sabano Lavan? I was like, what? What are you talking about? And then you read down and you understand that what they were talking about was the opening of Israel's very first 7-Eleven. Welcome to the 20th century, Israel. Uh, How do you say 7-Eleven in Hebrew? Sheva? Sheva chatesli. <laughs> so the store offers hot dogs with buns for about 15 shekels, so about four bucks. It does not, as of yet, charge for any sauces and toppings. Wow, uh, that's a if, deal. If you want your soft serve ice cream, you will pay seven checks or $2. And of course, there are Slurpees, although I was deeply disappointed to note that there are no kind of authentic, like real in-house flavors no for the Slurpee. Flavored Slurpee. I was really, I was really oh, you looking wanted for Israeli... a, a Trina-flavored Slurpee. <laughs> oh, God. You know? No, these, the Israelis are like, no, no, give me that blue one and the red one that are not yeah. made of anything real. I want, I okay. want the blue, Here's I want the red. my favorite part of this thing. Patrons serve themselves. This is a self-service 7-Eleven. That in Israel is a terrifying thing. (laughs) What does that mean? It's like chaos. Like you can get something, but like you have to like aggressively jostle for it. When waiters serve us, we're absolute (laughs) animals. Can you imagine removing all boundaries? This this store is going to close in three days. Israel's by the time you hear this, it's probably no longer a (laughs) 7-Eleven. From the Times of Israel, Israel's 7-Eleven CEO Avi Noam Ben Mocha. His that's, last name is yeah, literally like, Ben Mocha, the like, like the coffee drink, M-O-C-H-A. Ben Mocha told media outlets the self-service desk saves the customer time. It allows the customer to prepare themselves coffee, a hot dog, or ice cream just as they like. It and allows all, the customer to and, enjoy hitting other customers. <laughs> and, all the customer sh- and all within a short period of time. Has 7-Eleven brought the self-service kiosk <laughs> to Israel? Have they arrived in 1987? It's <laughs> This is confusing because they actually poach Ben Mocha from the Aroma franchise oh to run God. 7-Eleven there. I am trying to think if there's any other, literally any other self-service anything in Israel. I it's too cannot, dangerous. I cannot reason. think of one. For good reason. What What would it be? Avi Noam Ben Mocha, speaking of news of the Jews, I believe should have gotten this year's Genesis Prize, <laughs> <laughs> but couldn't. I read from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency, a prize established to honor a single inspiring Jew with a lifetime of achievements in podcasting, perhaps, has been awarded this year to a nameless group whose work is ongoing, Jewish activists in war-ravaged Ukraine. The Genesis Prize Foundation said the war in Ukraine required a change in the approach it has taken since creating the prize a decade ago, a prize known by some as the Jewish Nobel. Two questions. First of all, as we ask every year, 
who calls it the Jewish Nobel except for the PR firm hired by the Genesis. But, but also, I think we do. Nobody <laughs> calls it that. No, because the, the Jewish Nobel is the Nobel. Right. Yeah, that's true. Because as Aunt Sylvia will tell you, we win all the Nobels. Wait, okay, okay. I love this idea that like you could win the Genesis Prize and you're like, hey, Ma, I won the Jewish the Nobel. And she's like, talk to me when the Nobel Prize calls you, when you get the call from, right. s- from Stockholm to right. like come up. There is no Jewish Nobel. Also, the idea of being part of a group that's won the prize always strikes I mean, insofar as these prizes are these superficial kind of dumb things that are meant to exalt a given individual. My uncle, my uncle Bob was president or founder or something of Physicians for Human Rights. And I believe they won the Nobel Prize at some point. We did not think Uncle Bob had won the Nobel Prize. We understood that a group of lots of people had won the Nobel Prize. And God, Uncle, Bob, Uncle Bob could not wear the Swedish medallion or whatever. And here's the thing. Who gets the money? When all the Jewish Ukrainian activists get a prize collectively. Well, the, groups, the, answer, the answer is simple, Mark. The group's founder, George Sanders. <laughs> right? I mean, an amazing, he's been on the ground. He's really, you know, well, here's what it is. It's a self-service thing. You go up to the 7-Eleven and you pull the silver the machine. Red one. The, you get the, the red one. The money comes out. We never saw Uncle Bob again. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamu, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. So, J. I, being a member of Goop Nation, guru seeking, basic bitch, wellness addicts uh, was <laughs> was boycotting this particular interview, but it came out so delightful. Rina Rafael, I say it with proper Israeli pronunciation, is a journalist and the author of The Gospel of Wellness, Jim's Gurus, Goop, and Everything Liel Loves. No, Jim's Gurus, Goop, and the False Promise of Self-Help. She joined us a while back to talk about how to really take care of yourself and your loved ones for the new year, the Jewish new year, the Gregorian new year, any new year you may be celebrating. Have a listen. Rina Raphael, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. So let's talk about your journey, your wellness journey, your spiritual journey. Tell us what got you to the gospel of wellness, Jim's Guru's Goop, and the false promise of self-care. How did this book come about? I was a huge wellness fan. I did all the fitness retreats. I drank the kombucha. I bought the supplements. And over time, because I was just so interested in this field, it ended up seeping into my work. I'm a journalist. And so full-time, I started covering the wellness industry for Fast Company magazine starting about five years ago. So not only was I doing all this stuff, but I was interviewing all of the companies and brands, everyone from Gwyneth Paltrow to biohacking guru Dave Asprey. And over time, I started seeing troubling trends. And the more I covered this industry and the more I tried it, 
the more I just saw how oftentimes there was just little, if any, scientific evidence. And if anything, the messaging behind this industry was adding more pressures than necessarily helping people. Your book is endlessly compassionate. I think it's very good about not judging, but ultimately there's an argument here. And the argument I think is that this is an industry that takes advantage of people, primarily women, to take their money. Is that a fair summation of an argument of your book? Yeah, I mean, without painting with too wide of a brush, because obviously there are plenty of companies and plenty of trends that are helping people. But the problem is that this industry has become so bloated and become so unscientific that many of the things that we're seeing that we're told will help us won't actually do anything. So yes, it is taking their money. And it's not just money. It's taking time. Or in some cases, it's standing in the place of real therapeutic remedies that could actually help people feel better. Okay, so what is wellness? Circumscribe it for us. It's so funny. That's the number one question people ask me, which is kind of testament to what's happened to the word wellness. It's kind of an ambiguous marketing term right now. I mean, anything can be wellness, right? At its real core, wellness is the active pursuit of health. So those are all the things we could do to make ourselves healthier. So that's fitness, nutrition, sleep management. That's how it started. But now it can mean anything. Now it can mean CBD toilet paper. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) Cuddling puppies can be self-care. I mean, it's really devolved into this ambiguous umbrella term that brands can shove anything under. I'd say just walk into your Whole Foods and just go to the beverage aisle and see everything screeching at you that it's going to, you know, boost immunity and help cognitive function. I mean, it's everywhere. I feel like this book in some ways was written for me. I have this memory of growing up, you know, with some very influential women in my life, my grandmother, for example, and my mom. They didn't think about their diet that much. They didn't think about wellness. They just kind of lived. And it seems to me that one of the things that's happened is, and of course it's hit men as well, but I, you argue pretty powerfully that it hits women more strongly is that none of us trust ourselves to just get up in the morning and live and just go to the supermarket and buy stuff and just do with our leisure time what we want. Like my dad played tennis because he liked playing tennis. He never thought, how many calories is it burning? Am I aerobic or anaerobic in it? because he didn't have the watch on telling him, giving him his stats and data. (laughs) Right, like couldn't we just be and just live? When did we stop doing that? We're fetishizing health right now, which is why you see people freaking out over wellness. It's not just a normal part of your life. Now people are told they have to do these exact things in a very perfect way, right? You have to eat clean. You have to exercise every day. You've got to meditate with your app. It's all these things. This is what I mean by that. It's adding pressure and then people become obsessed. Or, you know, as I chronicle in the book, they get fitness OCD from their Fitbit. They get nervous that they didn't take enough steps and then they can't eat a certain meal to balance out all the calories. You're right. People are doing all this math and they really just need to relax. We kind of know what to do already. We know we should eat more fruits and vegetables and we know we should get some movement. You don't need to take it to the nth degree. But at the same time, I think some of this is a reaction to a lot of us who grew up, let's say, in the 70s or 80s, where we were just eating fruit roll-ups. And- it was awesome. Yeah, we were. We didn't care enough <laughs> right. about our health. And so now now you had an overcorrection to the other space where people are like, well, we didn't have a healthy childhood. And now we got to go full throttle. But I feel like we did have a healthy childhood. I mean, I'll, I'll push back only because I feel like you've obviously had to think pretty deeply about this. Like, I feel it wasn't that unhealthy, was it? I mean, did we have to have this revolution and this counter-correction? Or could we just have kept eating some fruit roll-ups and watching more TV <laughs> and growing into healthy human beings? Well, I think some things probably could have been better. I mean, listen, I think it's great that you can go to the airport now and there's far more healthier options for snacks. That's great. 
But as I say in the book, there's a really big difference between trying to add more vegetables to your kid's diet and then going fully clean and being obsessed with eating organic, which studies have shown is not necessarily more nutritious. It's more about the agricultural method. So this is where I say that sometimes we're kind of being sold marketing that isn't completely honest. You're right. We don't have to obsess. Uh, None of us dropped dead when we were eight years old. Things could have been better. And it's great that there is a little bit of a course correction. The problem is that it's too much of a course correction. It's so funny because there has been, your book points out, something all along that has offered these sort of strictures. Um, And a lot of what you write about is the way wellness culture sort of pulls from the, the template of organized religion. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. And I mean, the title's kind of tongue-in-cheek. The gospel of wellness. Yes. And I'm not making the argument that people are seeking wellness and health as an organized religion. But I do say that we see that this industry is sort of adopting a regulatory framework telling people how to live. So wellness culture has its own commandments. It has its own morality. It also has its own false idols. And it's providing a lot of women with all the things that organized religion used to provide, which is identity, community, purpose, belonging, guidance. And oftentimes what I found in my research was that the people who were really abiding by that were people in coastal cities, upper middle class or affluent women, who consider themselves spiritual but not religious, meaning they had moved away from organized religion. But in America, especially in this culture, if you get rid of organized religion, something else is going to come and take its place. Now, that could be social justice, it can be politics, but it can also be the pursuit of health. I spoke to so many women who got real meaning out of giving their kids organic food or who really felt like there was a commandment that they had to eat clean and exercise for an hour each day. That's what I mean by that. It's adopting sort of patterns of organized religion. It's so funny. I'll out myself here as someone who has gone to SoulCycle on Rosh Hashanah. I do think it was the second day. I'll, I'll say that. And like <laughs> spinagogue is a term that I use not, you know, like this idea of spinagogue, right? Like I'm getting something that feels spiritual out of it, right? You're in this dark room, there's candles, all this stuff. You know, something that your book really highlighted for me was what is that in place of? And, you know, you share, you know, really honestly about what happened when your father died and the community you got was not in a spin class. It was sort of surprisingly at at a synagogue, right? And in those Jewish rituals. Totally. And, and I think the real issue I take is that these gyms keep marketing themselves as your church, your tribe, your community, your family. But if you lose your job, do you really think SoulCycle is going to let you continue going? What happens if you get a physical injury? I spoke to so many women who became pregnant and suddenly they were told, let's say in their third trimester, you can't keep coming to the gym. You're a liability. And they were crying and saying, but that was my family. This is what I mean by that. If you depend on these spaces to act like organized religion, they won't exactly deliver. And yes, they don't have any rituals for rites of passage or if a family member dies. They have not had centuries to perfect themselves and to perfect community outreach the way that houses of worship do. Now, I'm not saying everyone should go and join organized religion. That's not the point of my book. I'm just saying that we are putting a lot of faith into wellness spaces and they're not necessarily equipped for it. A big difference I see from organized religion is the question of, of whom it's for, right? That the, the wellness seems to always be about improve yourself. And religion at its best is how can you go serve your co-religionists or humanity at large? And I guess I'm curious about, 
just to be blunt about it, the narcissism of it. I mean, it strikes me that a lot of wellness, a lot of its practitioners see themselves as somehow engaged in a progressive act when what they're doing is spending money on themselves. And you're much gentler in your critique than I am, but is that an unfair critique? No, definitely. I think it is, to some degree, can be a worshiping of the body. And it makes you a little bit obsessed with how your body is performing. But as we all know, our bodies will eventually break down. So uh, you're kind of setting yourself up to fail. Um, a lot of the wellness industry and culture is built around self-optimization and basically getting to this glittering ideal where the goalpost keeps moving. And so, yeah, I, I share that critique. I also go into sort of some of these new age trends that have really, really taken off. And they're all really focused too often on the self and emotional management and self-soothing, right? Or you find a lot of people who are sort of cherry picking from different religions and kind of customizing their own faith, but they never seem to pick giving back or charity or community outreach. They always pick the things that really kind of serve themselves. So it becomes a self-oriented spirituality. There's an amazing scene in the book where you're at one of these like wellness retreats and someone asks like, what's your practice? And you basically say Judaism and they look at you like you're crazy. So so what is it like to be a person of faith, whatever that means, to use a deeply un-Jewish term in these spaces, like to say that actually you have something if you need to call on it that we all kind of do. Right. Yeah. Someone was asking me how I meditate. They literally opened up a conversation like that. And uh, I was honest. I said, when I get really overwhelmed, I open up a Tehillim book and I recite the words that I've said since I've been a little girl. And they thought I was insane. I mean, I might as well have introduced myself as basic, essentially. Wait, did you actually say Tehillim or did you say Psalms for them? <laughs> uh, well, I said I said prayers, okay. but I know I know this audience knows what that is. Because if you'd said Tehillim, and, uh, they would have thought it was some really interesting word from some wisdom tradition they didn't know and they would have been all into it. But you said prayers. Right. I was like, you know, I say ashray. Right. You know ashray, ashray right? yeah. Um, it's like ashram, but different. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so they were all kind of, and this happened, I'm in LA, which is kind of ground zero for wellness culture, but this happens all the time where I say I do a Jewish practice and people think I'm bizarre. Meanwhile, they had just told me that they, you know, clutch their crystals and they're manifesting their dream job and they do all these things as well. How come that's not considered peculiar? But what I do is. Is a little bit of that just anti-Semitism? Because if you said my practice is Buddhist or Hindu, they'd be super into it. I don't think it's anti-Semitic. What I think is that Judaism or any organized religion just isn't cool in these spaces, right? You're basically saying you belong to organized religion and organized religion isn't cool. They want new age uh, spirituality, which is seen as a lot more democratic, decentralized, and it's not plagued by a whole bunch of scandals. And to them, it's more exotic. I don't want to I don't want to say that everyone who's interested in these things thinks like that, but there is a strain of people who feel that organized religion is kind of off limits now. But, you know, I also find a lot of Jews who are not interested in Judaism who have flocked to these uh, New Age spirituality and think that all the wisdom remains with them. And I so badly want to tell them that Judaism has some of the same wisdom. We have Chazal, we have Perkei Avot. I mean, we invented Shabbat. I mean, you want to talk about a detox? You want to talk about getting rest? <laughs> yeah, you want to talk about self-care? There's so much in Judaism. And for some reason, I don't know if it's on our part with the messaging, but it's not attractive to a whole bunch of people. And it really, it's painful. This is so fascinating. I mean, you wrote in the Times a few years ago about all of these fitness trends coming out of religion. What is it like? Soul core, 
body prayer, like fit prayer. Like there's all this stuff that's actually rooted in religion now. Right. So basically that was a piece for the New York Times about how religious spaces, so churches, uh, synagogues, they're really struggling to get younger audiences on a Saturday or Sunday morning. So they're basically borrowing from wellness spaces to get them in because this is what they hear from people. Well, uh, on the weekends, I I really want to work out. And so I don't have time to go to synagogue and work out. So I got to choose one. So basically what they're doing is they're reimagining the entire davening around workouts or they're adding in meditation or they're basically doing services over a hike so they can combine the both of them to attract younger audiences. I think it's a kind of novel idea. Uh, I don't think it's going to appeal to everyone, but it is showing that at least certain communities are realizing that they need to find what people like and get them in there. And throughout the course of history, I would say religion has always adapted to the needs of the day. I I feel like older audiences will definitely not like some of these things, but it'll be interesting to see if they take off. How much of this is an urban phenomenon? Obviously, wellness is everywhere. But I do wonder, you, you make such a good point in the book of how much of it is a response to workaholism, right? Especially women who are doing this double shift of working full-time jobs and then still shouldering the burden of the childcare or the housekeeping or if they have families. And so an hour at yoga is, is an escape and is a response and is a way to say, I have something else going on besides the endless Zoom meetings. And that, of course, is very L.A. and New York, where people work these crazy hours, these 60 or 70 hours. And I, I think it's not accidental, right, that in places with a somewhat slower schedule and pace of life, in many sort of southern towns, for example, lots of people go to church, right, um, as opposed to my New Haven neighborhood where almost nobody does. So I guess I wonder, like, what if we had a 30-hour work week? I just kept thinking, like, I wanted to write in the margins, 30-hour work week, 30-hour work week, because a lot of what people are buying is permission to take time that's not working, Because if you say I'm going to yoga or I'm going to Orange Theory, that's defensible. Whereas sitting around sipping tea on your porch wouldn't be defensible because of the workaholism. So how much of this is a response to people working too much? You bring up some really good points. And I would say one thing is that, and I talk about this in the chapter on self-care, which is that we're basically masking the symptoms. We're talking about all the self-care and all these yoga classes you need to go to because we are overburdened, because we're so stressed. And what this industry tells us is not to look at the root issues, You know, instead of going to your boss and saying, hey, I need you to not email me after 6 p.m., it's saying, no, what you need is a bubble bath. As if the reason that we're all stressed (laughs) is because we're not buying face masks and, and bath bombs. I mean, it's ridiculous, right? And what's amazing is that so many people are attracted to the wellness industry because they're unsatisfied with the medical industry. And they'll say things like, ah, my doctor's not looking at the root causes. And then they go and replicate the same exact thing with wellness. Again, as if all of these self-care rituals are really going to get at the reason why you're so stressed or unhappy with the news or not, you know, all a whole bunch of reasons that I explain in the book. And as for, as you mentioned, you know, sort of a slower pace of life, you know, I've been to middle America and they are just as stressed as people in big cities. You know, I spoke to a lot of farmers. They have crazy work weeks. They also do things to relax and to self-care, as we like to say. But it looks really, really different. I remember I was driving through Georgia and I stopped at a gas station and I asked people like, hey, what do you guys here do for wellness? And they laughed at me. They're like, oh, that word. But they were like, "Uh, we take a cigarette break. Uh, We go um, hunting. We go on boat rides. We hang out with our family and just have a beer. Theirs looks different. And, And I think that, you know, this is what I make the distinction between 
sometimes real wellness and the commodified wellness. Um, I'm not saying everyone should go take a cigarette break, but you can just sit with a warm cup of tea. You can go for a walk. There are so many things we can do that are free. You don't have to buy the bath bomb. You know, you don't have to go to a soul cycle class, but that's what we're being told we need to do. And what you're actually seeing now is that some people are now getting stressed that they're not doing relaxation right because they don't have all <laughs> the accessories and they're not doing the right trends, which is ridiculous. I always feel that way about people who have exercise-related apps. Like, it just strikes me that somehow in the grand scheme of things, you shouldn't need an app to exercise. And maybe that's unfair. I mean, the guy I swim with, you know, he has an app that just tracks how far he swims because he likes to know. But it does, it does strike me that there's a sense that if you're not spending money on it or not digitizing it somehow, it can't be maximally effectual. I think that Rena, what you're saying is like there is a fine line, like, or there's a, a way to find the balance, which is like, it is nice to have that data, right? But like, I stopped sleeping in my Apple Watch because it was telling me how much I slept that night. <laughs> and that was stressing me out the next day because I was like, mm -hmm. I didn't get enough sleep. I'm going to be tired today. And I'm like, am I actually tired? Or do I just feel like my sleep score, like the optimization commodification is actually the issue? Totally. And also, wouldn't you know if you're tired? Yeah, like, like I know <laughs> when I'm tired. I don't need a gadget to tell me that. <laughs> mm. Stephanie, you have, you have a one-year-old, so the answer is you're tired. The answer is I'm tired. <laughs> the answer is you're tired. Rena Raphael, I love this. I think that the book is great, um, and I, I think the message you're sharing is really, really important. And maybe we'll, like, we'll see you at synagogue one day. We'll see you at temple. I would love that. <laughs> um, is there going to be a fitness routine? Will it be synagogue? <laughs> <laughs> the book is The Gospel of Wellness, Jim's Guru's Goop, and the False Promise of Self-Care. Rena Raphael, thank you for being a guest on Unorthodox. Thank you. Hey, J. Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, got a letter in the mailbox, mailbox. 
mailbox. I don't want to leave Hanukkah behind entirely because the good mail still comes in. This one came into the mailbox a little bit, a little bit late in the season. Hi, Mark. I have a story related to Hanukkah llamas, which you discussed, <laughs> and what things are goyish or not. When I was working at an Orthodox girls' school, a group of students wanted to order custom crew socks that said Happy Lamaka, and they were trying to pitch this to the Menachel, who is a lovely older rabbi. Menachel's like what? The Menachel's principal. Principal. Okay, there we go. Incidentally, crew socks, very cool statement to go with your from uniform, she writes. They just kept explaining to him what they wanted, and he was so beyond flummoxed and finally said, what is this goyish thing you want? Llamas? I don't understand. So it seems happy. You like that? That accent was part Indian, I mean, yeah, it's part no. Irish, all offensive. Yeah. So it seems happy. Lamaka, like Spider Man, is goyish. They did not get their socks. Sad. Sincerely, anonymous teacher at an Orthodox girls' school. Now I know who this teacher is. Her name was originally <clears throat> included. She said, "Don't mention me because I don't want to be, I don't want to be put in harem or what. Like you know, like I want to have my cred in the Orthodox girls' teaching world. Right. But this is a true to story. My, to look at my. True story. Orthodox girls not allowed to have happy Lamaka crew socks. Sad. Maybe next year. From the Facebook group. This is, this is like for what you were, what is what do they say? For such term? a time as this. Yes, this for is exactly. Such a time as this. In this the this should group. channel your inner Grandchester. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Solve a mystery in the town of New Haven. From the Facebook group, Vicar. someone posts two pictures of a kiddish cup with the initials J-A-K and the date 326 83. We don't know if 1883 or 1983. Along with the message, I've been trying for years to find the owner of this Kiddush Cup. I acquired it in the New Haven, Connecticut area a number of years ago and have contacted all the organizations around there to no avail. The initials are J-A-K, the date 3-26-83. I just want to return it to the owner of the family, no strings attached. Hope someone on this site might be able to help. Toda Rabah. Okay, so we are now taking this on us. So what is this? What am I looking at you in this photo? You were looking at a, ver- at a silver, at a tarnished silver kiddush cup that says, says bar, is that a vav? Bar mitzvah. It says bar mitzvah. Yes, it says J-A-K, bar mitzvah, 326, 83. I am guessing 1983. So who, <laughs> I don't know that they were like silver smithing bar right. mitzvah goodies right. uh, in the 1880s. I mean, maybe they were. But it could be. I mean, there could have been, you know, some old school German Jewish family that could afford this in the early 1880s. Anyway, does anyone know of a JAK bar mitzvah in Greater New Haven? Now, it was acquired in Greater New Haven. It could be anywhere. Who is a JAK in America, let's say, whose bar mitzvah was March 26, 1983? What would their parsha have been? We can find okay, that because because they want it back, they're gonna have to do. They're gonna have to lay off. They have to lay off. And you remember your Dvar Torah about uh, charity, right? Exactly. Here's, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna hold it, and if you want it, we're gonna say <laughs> and then we're gonna and be real quiet. No, we have to do it in the voice, <laughs> like the voice of the poor thirteen-year-old boy trying to. So that's on us. Write to us at unorthodoxatabletmag.com if you know the answer. Stephanie, would you take the next letter? This is a great one. Dear Unorthodox, I enjoyed your discussion about Jewish and Israeli, but I'm wondering if you're willing to take it a step further. Why is it anyway that someone who is a Jew is Jewish? Adherence to Catholicism aren't Catholic-esque. Is there a reason Unorthodox wouldn't endorse making Jew the adjective form too? Thanks, Menachem Wecker. Mark, this one goes to you because you're, I, well, I don't quite understand what, what the question is. They is actually it, want to get rid of the word Jewish altogether. Which it's you not, kind of want. Well, I want people who are Jewish to identify as Jews. If someone says, what's your religion? Say, I'm a Jew. Don't say, I'm Jewish, which seems to soften a little bit. Like, it's not quite as Well, we all think right. Jew is a bad word. It's a bad word. <laughs> I'm not sure that I feel that requires, I mean, 
there's still a place for the adjective. We'd say, oh, this is a Jewish text or that's a Jewish holiday. This person wants to say that's a Jew text. What? That's oh. a Jew holiday. So that's Jew food. What was I watching <laughs> recently food. where they're like, say the whole word? Was this a show? Was it something where someone was like, oh, you're a Jew? And she's like, say the whole word. As though it was offensive to be called a Jew. Jew can someone tell me? Jew-a-thon? Can someone listening just remind me what I was, what I'm thinking of? Jew man? Um, no, I don't like, know. Like, like, An like, encounter on 87th Street? No, someone calling you a Jew, like a Jewish know. person responding that. to that by being like, say the whole word. Friends, we have so much crowdsourcing to do this week. Call us at 914-570-4869. Leo, would you take the final letter? With great pleasure. Hello, unorthodox. Shalom, shalom. I'm writing from a small suburb just north of Detroit with a brief personal message. No need to read this on air or anything like this. Well, yes, yes, there is a need. In January 2021, I connected with a local rabbi to discuss converting to Judaism, to discuss converting to Jew. Fast forward to right now, two years later, and a date is set for my meeting with the best din and to immerse in the mikveh, February 7th, the day before my 42nd birthday, two days before y'all are in my area doing a live taping. And I just wanted to say thank you. In the span of two years, I've listened to nearly the entire back catalog of unorthodox episodes. And could I have done it without you? Sure. No, we don't actually think that's true. But the whole thing wouldn't have been as delightful or meaningful without y'all. I appreciate y'all more than you can imagine and hope to be there on February 9th. But regardless of whether my wife and I can make it, I wish you all the best for your travels and the show. Listening appreciatively, Eric. Eric couple of things. First of all, thank you. Second of all, welcome home. Third of all, if you cannot make it on our live show, let us know. We'll, we'll come, come to you. you. We'll come. This is the you. kind of podcast we are. We'll get in the car. We'll, you know, come knock on the door. Maybe bring a babka or something. Just holler it at us. Hey, guys, this is a great time for us to say that we're always looking for stories for our conversion episode. So you can call us or write to us with thoughts about any of this. Who's the J.A.K.? Whatever we're looking for help with. But in particular, do you have a conversion story for our conversion episode coming up as ever this Shavuos? You can write to us at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. John Bermuda Schwartz. By the way, I just got that. It's like Bermuda Schwartz, but it's Bermuda <laughs> oh my God, Schwartz. That's so funny. <laughs> I'm still pun disabled. He's been the drummer with Weird Al Yankovic since 1980. He is on all of Weird Al's albums, videos, concert, and TV performances. And he is a member of the band that Liel Leibowitz loves beyond all others. In Liel's mind, it goes from God to Leonard Cohen to Weird Al. That's the Mount Rushmore. To everybody else. It's Weird Al and then the Beatles. It's, yeah, basically. So it is fitting that he joined none other than our music correspondent, Leah Leibowitz, to talk about his career as drummer to, you know, the greatest artist of this or any other century. John Bermuda Schwartz, welcome to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. This is a huge thrill for me as I am an enormous fan. I want to start right from the beginning. Uh, I hope you're lying down on the couch because I'm, I'm going to take you back 
to your childhood. So you grew up, I believe, in Arizona. And it seems to me from all I've read about you that literally everyone in your family was insanely musically talented. Everyone played or sang something, yes. Actually, my brother's uh, extremely talented. And uh, actually, I guess my dad was too. He played accordion, of all things. <laughs> my mother played piano and was also... Uh, a singer in Chicago. She was like a child prodigy. So yes, I, I come up through a musical family and and uh, inherited my dad's accordion tendencies. I, I played accordion before I played drums as a kid. This I did not know. So this this is your premier instrument, the accordion. I could have been Weird Bermuda and this Al Yankovic guy could have been my drummer. <laughs> Who knew? And so your brother goes on to be quite a successful musician, plays with, you know, Neil Diamond, a host of others. Is he older or younger? Uh, he's older. He's five years older. So that, that means that while you're still kind of a you know teenager, he's already making it as a musician, right? Uh, yeah. He was, I think, with Neil's band when he was 20 or 21. So I have, I have a million questions about that. First of all, how does he pull it off? I mean, how does how does a nice Jewish boy go to his mother and say, you know, you know what I'm going to do now? I think I'm going to play rock and roll guitar in a band. And then also you as, as his younger brother, are you like, now I have to be the doctor in the family, or do you always know you're going into the same business? Well, I always wanted to play drums. I mean, I'd, I'd wanted to play drums since I was 12, you know, for a living. And uh, didn't know how I was going to do it, but I just had that in my head that that was something I wanted to do. And, and I've been very lucky and grateful that I fell into that and have been able to do that. Uh, in Richard's case, uh, now his last name is, uh, is Bennett, and uh, he is my blood brother. And my parents must have thought he was going to go into show business. They gave him Bennett as a middle name in case he ever wanted to go into show business. And he did. And he took his middle name as his last name. So his name was Richard Schwartz, but has been, was legally changed years ago to Richard Bennett. We both went into a very difficult field, you know, in a very chancy field. 99% of the people don't have any kind of real success in it. And, and we both did very well. We both have been very lucky, very fortunate. It seems like not only did you both do very well, but you, you did very well in like these kind of almost unheard of, you know, like I obviously watched the biopic that just came out and it depicts things in this hilarious way of, of how, you know, Weird Al got his start. But it seems to me like your start was this epic thing, right? You're, you're sitting there at Dr. Demenda's studio. It's 1980. You're how old at this time? I just turned 24. 24. Okay. So by then you've been, you've been a musician for a little bit, right? You've played in a few bands around LA and here you are in the studio and this guy walks in. Take me back. I, well, I had heard of him. He went to school up North from LA and he would come down most weekends and answer phones and sometimes do songs live on the air. And I was there being interviewed because I was one of the first people to send homemade music to the show and have it played on the air. This was long before it was actually a thing, before everyone made homemade music and everyone got played. So back in 73, 74, you know, 75, 76, whatever, uh, I had sent a couple of things in and they got played. So I, I went down there and Al was there that night that I was being interviewed. And uh, I did my interview and, uh, you know, and I've got a copy of it. And, and it's, you know, I was, uh, I must have been very, uh, at, at a lot of stage fright. I just, I wasn't very chatty. I wasn't very witty. I, I probably stumbled a lot. And uh, Al was going to debut a song he had just written that weekend. Another one rides the bus, parody of the Queen song. And he was a, a buddy of his, Beefalo Bill, Bill Burke. I think he had asked him to play the accordion case on that because he was a friend of his. And, you know, Al didn't really know me. And I think Bill said, well, why don't you ask the drummer over there and see if he wants to do it? And so he asked me and I said, well, yeah, sure. Why not? So we rehearsed it. You know, I beat on his accordion case. That was the only real kind of drum thing around. <laughs> and that's how, and it got, went out live on the air that night. They, you know, Demento picked a spot somewhere in the top 10 for Al to debut the song he had just written. 
And fortunately for all of us, Dr. Demento rolled tape on it, not just a air check that he would, you know, record his shows on cassette, but he actually rolled reel to reel recording of this. And it started getting played like on morning drive at the stations five days a week. That was a, a huge leap for Al. I mean, every, everything he did at the time was a huge leap. That was huge. Now he was being played on mainstream radio. And so you have been playing together ever since that night. Yes. How did that arrangement go? Okay, so you finished, you played the accordion case, you know, and went well, said, thank you so much. Nice meeting you. Goodbye. And then the song goes big. So does he call you up and say, hey, man, like, I actually really need you in my corner now? Well, as a matter of fact, he did. He says, uh, he called me about three weeks later. He says, remember that thing we did that night? It's it's being played all over the country now, you know, in, in morning drive. I said, oh, how nice. You know, he says, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up school pretty soon. I'll be home in January. And, uh, you know, I want to record some songs and put out an EP and, you know, do you want to play on it? And I said, well, yeah. And it just went from there. You know, it never occurred to me at any point in the last 42 plus years now to not do whatever he's asked me to do. You know, if he wants to go on the road, is yeah. You know, you want to record an album? Sure. You know, you want to do a photo shoot? Yeah. You want to be in a video? Yeah. You want to... Oh, wait, I asked him if I could put out some books. That was different. And he said, yeah. Yeah, as, as, as he said in the Carnegie Hall concert I attended, you know, he saw you and immediately signed you to an exclusive 40-year <laughs> contract. Well, well, that was the other guys. Right, but but you, it qualifies for you too. So so here, here's the question, you know, what, what kind of music did you listen to growing up? What are your favorite bands? Well, I, you know, in, in the 60s and into the 70s, you know, the Beatles, of course, a lot of pop music. Some of the... I guess you'd call them rock bands, you know, Boston and and uh, Journey a bit and Starship, you know, was playing some heavier stuff, I guess. Uh, you know, but I listened to pop radio. Who, who Who's your drumming idol? Who, who did you want to grow up and be, so to speak? Well, probably Ringo. But later I learned that I probably would rather be Hal Blaine. Right. And Hal was a very prolific studio drummer in L.A. when labels demanded that bands sound radio ready and a lot of those bands weren't they had good songs and maybe a good singer but they needed them to sound good so there was a literally a crew of musicians in la it was hal and and a bunch of other guys and they recorded a ton of stuff they recorded a lot of songs that that were monkey songs paul reaver and the raiders beach boys mamas and the papas stuff for petula clark uh, helen reddy uh, neil diamond the joke is you know hal was nine out of my ten favorite drummers <laughs> Because <laughs> I heard a lot of Hal and didn't know it was him until much later. So my question is this. I mean, you grew up with these like great big icons who shape so much of sound. And here comes this guy. And again, it's really easy to ignore this from the vantage point of, you know, 40 something years later and, and, and all of your success. But comes a guy and like you did this funny song. It's like a parody of Queen. Was there any point in your career that you said, hey, man, you know, you're nice and everything. And this is cool. But I want to do real rock, man. I want a real music. Well, from my perspective, and really the rest of the band's perspective, it is real music. I mean, it's nothing. There's nothing funny about what we do, hopefully. And uh, you know, the only difference really is is the words, the lyrics, and the occasional sound effects, the ratchet, the bulb horn, the siren whistle, which I do. That's the only difference from my perspective. I mean, I'm I'm rocking out. You know, I, I get to you know just again, the lyrics are different. If you took the lyrics, out, you know, we would be regarded as a uh, world class band. And I mean, finally, you know, you, decades after we got started and, you know, people said, oh, it's a comedy band. We are getting our due and people do appreciate, you know, the hard work and, and the level of expertise and the growth that we've all achieved to be able to do the things we do. 
I think you're not just a great band. I think you're the greatest band. I I, I don't I don't I don't care much for uh for those schlubs, McCartney and Lennon and you know Richards and, and Jagger could go take a hike. You guys are so unbelievably incredible. And again, this is me watching you ever since I was seven. Because you are not a master of one musical genre style sensibility. You need to embody and perfect and improve on literally everyone. And so often when I hear you play a song, it's like, this sounds so... I'll give you an example. You know, I heard when I first heard The Saga Begins. A long, long time ago in a galaxy far away. It's like, this is not only a much better version of American Pie, it's also a much better version of The Phantom Menace. Like, these guys made this such an incredible song. So so my question, you're working on, on a song parody. How do you sort of embody and then make the beat your own? How do you how do you enter a song that someone has already made famous and said, okay, well, it's, it's now going to be a, a John Bermuda Schwartz song? Well, it's, in the case of the parodies, it's not. It's got to be that original song song as much as we can possibly do it. So my goal is to just emulate or duplicate, hopefully, whatever is on that original recording. And and in the early days of, of what we were doing, it was pretty easy because there was a lot of live drums. And Al didn't really select anything that was terribly musically challenging because that wasn't what was happening on pop radio. That wasn't what people would have known and appreciated as a parody. You know, we're not doing Yes parodies or King Crimson parodies or Gentle Giant parodies or, you know, stuff like that, or Pink Floyd parodies. You know, we're doing pop music parodies. But as Al began parodying more more uh, production-intense music, more music that was synthesized, we had to learn. We had to grow. And we did. We did very, very well, I, I think. If you listen to our last couple of albums in particular, the uh, rap and dance and techno tracks that we copied sound really, 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 really good. I mean, we got very, very good at what we did. They didn't call in some producer to, well, Al's the producer actually, but they didn't call in someone else to cook those up. We did all of those. And in doing that, you know, I say, you know, well, we listen and we copy. It's, you know, it's not quite that simple, but it kind of is, you know, we listen to it and we don't have to wonder, you know, what did they do? What did they use? What we have to wonder, how can I make that sound? What would I do to make that sound? And drums and percussion are, are really difficult. It's it's supremely difficult. And I'll, I'll give you the most difficult example. I always assumed that that riff in Stuck in a Drive-Thru, right? When when they were listening to Zeppelin in the car. Ugh. And this is Zeppelin part. I was like, oh, how cool. They licensed Zeppelin. Because I know how John Bonham plays. He's the greatest drummer who's ever walked the face of planet Earth. And this is definitely John Bonham. And then like literally like... Eight months ago or something like that, I was, you know, falling down. So it's at three in the morning, like you're down a rabbit hole on the internet, looking up your favorite things, listening to videos. It's like, yeah, let's let's see if it's indeed this. And I realized you guys played it and you sound exactly <laughs> like Ponzo. How? Really? How? Well, thank you. Not not exactly, but suitably close to him. It's funny because that's a weird sort of a turned around riff in uh, Black Dog. And it's really, it's very subjective as to where one is, as to where you count it. Click. And thank you. It's, it's We've been accused a couple of times of actually taking someone else's actual tracks and using it. That's how good we got. That's the goal. You know, the goal is to sound like those original recordings that people are familiar with. And, and then there are the original songs, which, you know, one of the things I loved best about the last concert I saw at Carnegie Hall it was all original music. The I think it was, what it was called, the self-indulgent tour or something like that. Right, right. And I think 
people who are not as devoted to your music as as the hardcore fans are don't realize how incredibly musically complex some of these songs are. Like, what is it like to play a, what is it, 14 and a half minute long song like Albuquerque? Oh, 16 and a half minutes. Yes. Uh, that's actually, you know what, for me, that's just a very simple beat. It's just, it's just relentless. And it's at almost the fastest tempo of anything we play all night, but it's just relentless. And of course, to put it at the end of a show where I'm already tired, you know, is not, you know, the best idea in my opinion, but, <laughs> but it's a fan favorite and, and we do it and we've been doing it. I think every tour since it was first recorded back in 99. As someone who has been not just watching the music industry very closely, but really, honestly, embodying it. As someone who had to learn these songs, play these songs, think through these songs, be kind of in these songs. I'm curious to see what you think. Because, you know, you could talk to like old school kids of the 80s like me, and it's really easy for someone in their 40s to be like, when we were kids... It used to be cool. It was Michael Jackson. There was Nirvana. It was great. And then now it's all this auto-tune, dance, rap nonsense. You know, it's very easy to be the sort of like old man yelling at cloud type type <laughs> thing. Do you, do you buy that? Or from your perspective, it's all just a parade of wonders? It's just a string of music to me. It's a string of drum parts, whether I, I programmed it on a computer or played it in the studio on drums. It's just, it's kind of all the same to me. I don't know that music has really changed that much i mean you know a couple of genres have evolved in the last 40 years but i i don't know that things have changed that much as much as they had in the 60s that music was so far from where it had been just 30 or 40 years before or even just 10 years before whereas the music now a lot of the bands it's the same as it was 20 30 40 you know years ago it's it's moving a little bit slower a lot more artists out there ultimately the public decides what survives and what doesn't, you know, if they, if they will buy or stream the music, if they'll go see them perform live, they'll be around. If they don't do it, then they come and go very quickly. And there've been a lot of those. Do you guys have criteria to, to what you choose? It's not just, you know, Oh, this song is famous and a hit. So, so we'll do it. I, I assume that there's some kind of attachment that, that you guys feel that makes you decide, okay, well, this is a song we're going to treat our way. Well, I mean, obviously it's gotta be a popular enough song that people would, would know what it is. The criteria is, can Al think of something funny enough? And if he can, would that translate, you know, can he do something with the video? Can he uh, take original video and do a parody of that? So really, it's it's not just the song. It's It does go, you know, as to whether Al thinks it's it's a, uh, I guess, a clever enough parody in, in order to do it. And if it's not, he won't. You're, in addition to being an amazing drummer, you're, you're also a fantastic historian and archivist. I know that you collect everything that the band has ever done and, and build websites and help with the production aspects and the sound design and everything. Is there anything that you look at that you say, it'd be really cool to do this. This is something we haven't done yet that I really wish we could do. I, you know, I don't know. It's hard to imagine. You know, I think I've been able to do a lot. You know, I'm very happy with what I've done. If this is all I do, that's fine. If it ends now for some reason, you know, and I can say the last gig I did was at Carnegie Hall. I mean, that would be very cool. Not not for us, by the way. It would be horrible for us. Well, no, no. But I mean, should, you know, the, the a terrible thing happen, you know, it's like we would have gone out on top. Yeah, no, it's certainly our intention to come back and work a lot more. You know, as long as people come see Al, uh, he's going to keep going out there. And as long as he keeps going out there and as long as I'm alive to do it, I'm going to go with him. No, he he seems to me, and again, this this may just be the sort of dewy-eyed imagination of a really, really hardcore fan, but he seems to me like 
again, like almost this mythical figure, I, I heard a story and I have no idea if this is true, that the night he found out that his parents passed away in this horrible accident, he came out and said to the audience something like, you know, I've been entertaining you for all these years and tonight I really need you. Maybe you could help me get through this. Something along these lines. Is, is that true? I mean, is that... I don't remember him saying anything quite like that that night because the news wasn't out. Actually, by the time the show was over, the news was out. It was like on CNN and it, you know, it was a national story. But I don't remember... Now, I knew that afternoon, as a matter of fact, his wife, Suzanne, had called my cell phone. He and I were working on the website. Uh, we were sitting on the bus and she called my phone and needed to reach out. I guess his phone, he had turned off his phone because it wears out the batteries or something. This was uh, 2004, I think it was. April 9th, 2004. So I put gave the phone to him and uh, his his demeanor changed very quickly. And this was about 2.30 in the afternoon or so. So he says, don't tell anybody and we're going to do the show and I'll just figure this out later. And I said, okay. So I was kind of watching Al the whole night. I don't know if he said anything quite like that. He didn't seem out of the ordinary. I sort of peeked in on him while he was doing some costume changes. You know, he gave me a thumbs up, you know, and then uh, we got to uh, Saga Begins. Got to the part about kissed his mommy goodbye. I thought, oh boy, here it goes. He left his home and kissed his mommy goodbye, and uh, he held up really well, and you would not have known. Soon I'm gonna be a Jedi. He stuck around. He finished the shows that week. Uh, he went home for a service on a day off. They scheduled a service for his folks, and he came back, and uh, he was better. And it, it took about another month or six or eight weeks or something until he was ready to start seeing people again. Because, you know, you start seeing guests and they all come up, oh, I'm so sorry about your parents. And, you know, he didn't want to hear that all night long after a show. But I don't I don't know if that show that night came off as anything different. Are you sometimes terrified by us hardcore fanatics? Because, you know, we come, we come dressed up to concerts. We come, you know, in full regalia, either Star Wars costumes or, you know, Hawaiian shirts, weird out hairdos. Are there times when you look out at us and say like, oh, wow, I would not want to be alone in the room with any of these people? No, no. You know what? It's, it's flattering. Uh, it's not an uncommon thing. It is interesting that, that most people that, uh, you know, dress like Al will do the glasses and mustache thing, which has been gone for like 23 years. Right. <laughs> but I think a lot of the fans uh, are older and they, they like the the younger look they remember that stuff and that's just how al is going to look you know that's like when you think of paul mccartney you think of beetle paul you don't think of you know uh you know 80 year old paul john bermuda shorts i cannot tell you what a pleasure this conversation has been i could go on and on and on and and quiz you about all my my favorite little minutia things but i'll let you go with so much gratitude thank you so much for being our guest thank you leo i appreciate it
A few weeks ago, you'll recall we played a terrific interview with Tabitha Soren, formerly of MTV News, now a, a very acclaimed art photographer. And we didn't play her Gentile of the Week question because I was the only one in on that interview. And it's actually a question that I wanted to bring to the whole crew, to the You're whole bring to with, the whole with all for bringing group of us. So let's have a listen to the Gentile of the Week question proffered by one Tabitha Soren a few weeks ago. The idea of anti-Semitism being active again, to me, is baffling. And so I'm not saying that it's not the case, because obviously it is the case. However, it just seems strange that with all the problems in the world, that would be something that people are walking around bothering with. And I was thinking about like, well, where does that stem from? And having listened to several of your podcasts where you kind of examine the antiquated aspects of, well, the Jews have all the money, Jews have all the power, Jews have all the smarts. I, I guess I just wondered if Jews feel complicated or I wondered if some of the envy associated with anti-Semitism is buffered, weakened by the fact that it's envy that it stems from. Like, it's not like with African-Americans is like, let's just think, okay, so a slave owner must have thought that this particular person, because they look like this and have this color skin is less than me. But with Jews, it's they're better. And I just wondered if that like made it less painful somehow. I love this idea that everyone's just jealous of us and that's why they think we control everything and like whatever. I love I like I like that read on it. Look, I think she's picking up on it's it's sort of a lot of like these questions that we've been getting where people are trying to understand how to how to understand anti-Semitism because other hatreds seem so much more straightforward, right? Like as the examples she's given, people being like, You're lesser. I hate like that's the problem. The insidiousness of anti-Semitism is how confusing it is, right, for Jews and also for, like, friends of Jews to be like, wait, this doesn't make sense. I think it's that's dumb. what everyone's saying. It makes perfect sense. Everyone's saying, I don't understand this. This and makes no the, but, sense but the jealousy, it makes perfect sense because the jealousy was there because the envy was there right from the beginning, right? There's there's a people and they come out and be like, yeah, we're, we're the chosen people, y'all. Like, here's our theology. Yeah, I guess our that theology is a very is divine election. And then the Christians come and be like, oh, fuck, like, these guys are the chosen people. If we want any street cred, like we got to be the new chosen people because they got something really special. And also we can't totally dismiss it because half of our Bible is their Bible. This is where that whole Jesus thing comes That in. is really a, a mindfuck. I was in an absolutely fascinating uh, meeting the other week with a bunch of mainly Catholic priests, but a lot of other, you know, members of some other members of Protestant clergy. And one of the priests said something that I found very profound. He was like, Jews could go through their entire life knowing absolutely nothing about Christian theology. You could not have read a word about Jesus or the New Testament, nothing, and you'd be just fine. It's not relevant for your emotional, spiritual life. Catholics Whoa. have to Ooh. know your Bible inside and out if they're serious about their own faith. That's The opening that. start, like the opening mark, is your faith. Of course there's going to be jealousy. Imagine that. It's like having a big brother who, like, went to college and, like, left his room behind, like, all his cool records and his, like, jackets and shit, like, hanging in the closet. And then you, like, cut them and to make like, them a little different. Whoa, could I ever be as cool as Johnny? Like, look at the car Johnny drove when he was my age. Like, it's— I Bedazzle his denim jacket. This is, this is not to denigrate, huh. you know, Christianity, which I, is a faith that obviously I'm obsessed with. But I, I think 
Yeah, we cannot think about them. They can never not think about us. Wow, they obsess yeah, I mean, I, I, To answer Tabitha's this question, I, I honestly have nothing more to say than, yeah, it definitely makes it easier. I mean, I, I would, <laughs> sure, I, you know, anti-Semitism is bad and I don't like it, but knowing that it comes from a kind of reverence and envy a lot of the time definitely makes it an easier bigotry to take than if it came from the condescension of thinking that we're stupid, dirty. We're too wily. That's the problem. Right. I mean, you know, I there are so many groups. Our who have hair to, is too thick and beautiful. That, that's right. <laughs> we, <laughs> there's so many groups who have to suffer prejudice grounded in the belief that they're stupider, unworthy, could never, right. could never handle the homework. And we, I mean, and there, there used to be such, you know, the thinking used to be how could Jews understand the Western tradition? Because it's like, oh, you have it. too much money. Like, okay. But now it's like, you have too much <laughs> cool. money. You're too smart. You're too wily. It's just all your advantages are unfair. I mean, sure, while you're at it, why don't you envy the fact that I'm six foot two? I mean, <laughs> to say something that's true in a George Santos way. Mazel tovs. Uh, Liel, do you have a mazel tov? I have a mazel tov. This is a hot take, but I'm sorry. I'm going all, all Let me in. say it's a hot take. It's all not out. a hot take. It is a hot take. No. Mazel tov, Prince Harry. How's that? <laughs> Who's he? First of all, uh, I think ever since, you, you know. Mean Henry Windsor? Ever since Abraham. Montbatten. Child of privilege? Ever since Abraham uh, circumcised himself at the age of 99, I don't think we have spoken so much about anyone's penis collectively as a Wait, people. why? Because the whole book contains like literally 17 or 19 or 36 references to his frostbitten penis. Oh, okay. D did you not? Are you not following this? No, Ben's been reading it. I'm going to read it after. Uh, wait, so you're no spoilers. Gonna, in your finite time on no, this planet, not, 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 you're going to read. Just, it is such a Jewish story. It is such a story of like, you know, Bubby was really interested in me continuing the family tradition and religion, which she took very, very seriously. The parents were kind of like, whatever, man, we'll send you to all the right schools, but we don't really believe any of that stuff. And now here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to like dish the whole thing because I'm cooler than you. It's like the quintessential story of American Jews. I'm obsessed with it. It's well, a great also, story. it's I deeper than that, as, as Deborah Dashmore documented in her famous monograph to the Golden Cities. You know, you went to California to escape the mom looking over your shoulder, right? If you stayed in Brooklyn, you were expected to join the shul and join the men's club mm -hmm. or whatever. And Jews went to Miami and California to eat trafe and party on. And there he is out in Montecito in the mudslides, you know, doing his thing. However, of course, no self-respecting American should care about his thing because we fought a war to escape the royals. And when you Americans, say his thing, you mean I mean who he thing. is. I mean, oh, okay. I mean, I mean his thing and royal. also yeah. who he is. As I have written, if you're American and you care about the royals, you're a traitor. <laughs> <laughs> what if he just mocked them? As, it's as like, I don't even See, know. He didn't I, say hot take and it was a hot I take. I try to not even know. That that I know who they are shows that I have failed. Wow. We are Americans. And you're, and you're American fought a war to not care about them. I confess the war is now with ourselves and we still care <laughs> and we have to fight the demons of caring. But it is our obligation as patriotic Americans to not give a flying fig about these inbred, worthless, undereducated people who have live in the family house and do Go no off. work. Um, <laughs> Bring all of your hateration. I don't have, I have a mausoleum memoriam. That sounds like a mausoleum, but it's not. But like the in memoriam I think section. It's called a mausoleum. I think you've coined a great use of a, a mausoleum. A mausoleum. Yeah. But do Jews do mausoleums? We can. Why okay. Yeah. All right. We can. No we can and we will. Uh, this is for Edie Landau. There was a New York Times obit that I found fascinating. Um, she, film producer who was ahead of her time. She died at 95. She and her husband, 
Eli, E-L-Y, another great old school name, um, invented a model for faithfully adapting acclaimed literature, illuminating an entire path for independent cinema. Love this article. Love learning more about Big Edie. And I love say. that you coined mausoleum because I, too, am going to offer a mausoleum. My mazel tov is, in fact, a mausoleum to 1951 Wimbledon champion Dick Savitt, who the Times called the first Jew ever to win the men's open at Wimbledon. But I think he's the only Jew ever to win the big <laughs> men's or or either or the yeah, women's. They, cha- they changed the rules after that. At Wimbledon. <laughs> they expelled all the Jews from England. Not a tennis. lot of Jewish tennis champions. You know, I'm of the generation that had high hopes for Aaron Krikstein back in the late 80s. And, uh, you know, he never made it as far as Michael Chang. In the model minority tennis sweepstakes, he was no <laughs> Michael Chang. But we had hopes for him. And, you know, now I follow Diego Schwartzman faithfully. But there are no Dick Savitt. And, and now Dick Savitt is no longer Dick Savitt. Farewell, Dick Savitt. And one final last minute breaking news. I am so, so, so happy to wish our dear friend Grant Silverstein the heartiest of Mazel Tovs because this week he got married to the lovely Dina Burkett. Mazel Tov to the young couple and all our best wishes from all of us here at Unorthodox. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Budnick and Leah Leibowitz. We're produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And the team includes Courtney Hazlett, Tanya Singer, Jerome Rusquet, Sam Hacker, and the ghost of Dick Savage. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Get our brand new swag at tabletstudios.com. Dick Savage would have worn it. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. And mailbox theme by Steve Barton. Send us snail mail. We're at P.O. Box 20079, New York, New York, 10001. And rabbinic supervision this week by Rabbi by Nitzenstein Kuchen at Beth El Congregation in Phoenix, Arizona, perhaps the home congregation of my friends Jordi and Ann Oland, friends of the pod. We come to you from Tablet Studios. Shalom, friends. I, th- I feel like we've talked about this over the past seven years. You do know about the urban legend that the Scooby-Doo characters each represent a different absolutely. elite Northeastern a- a- college, absolutely. all in Greater Amherst, I don't, five colleges. I don't think that's an urban legend. I think it's actually been somewhat well, confirmed. Well, according to the Valley Advocate, where my brother was a staff writer, by the way, back in 1999 and 2000, and which is based in East Hampton, Massachusetts, according to the headline, Why Won't the Scooby-Doo Five College Myth Go Away?, Shaggy was Hampshire College because he was the one who couldn't get out of bed and had to make his own curriculum and couldn't handle grades. And then one of them, who was uh, Daphne was Mount Holyoke and Velma was Smith. One of them's UMass and one of them is Amherst. Who was the preppiest of them? Fred. Fred. So he's Amherst, right? right. So but this was taken well, that as- that is niche. This was taken like like Mikey and the Pop Rocks. This was gospel when I as, was growing up. As as the, as the head, niche, but it was as gospel. the chief rabbi of the Scooby Sanhedrin, yeah. I, I declare this true. You declare it true. And it's as if nobody told Mindy Kaling. Now Velma is Stanford. <laughs> as an incubator Excluding startup. Excluding Jews, coding, doing a startup.